Welcome to episode seven of the Walk and Talk podcast. I'm Greg Johnson, and today is Sunday, May 3rd. In today's episode of the Walk and Talk podcast, we're going to be talking about the topic of feminism. Now, for most of you, that topic is something that you've heard uh, is an area of study. If you're going to college, you can um, study that. There, there wouldn't be necessarily a daily day-to-day practical application of feminism. Um, it's not like a technical skill you're going to learn in a community college. And it's sort of abstract. It's sort of philosophical. There are some concrete uh, examples, certainly, women having a right to vote. Women uh, one day will have equal pay in the workplace. Uh, and women being able to live at home and in the workplace and in public and elsewhere without um, being treated as uh, second-class citizens or harassed or whatever. And there are varying degrees of experience throughout the world for women. And so there is that kind of, I guess, at the forefront equal rights movement um, that comes to mind when you think about feminism. And What's interesting to me is that I actually see feminism as something that's very practical that has to do with effective living. And so um, I don't see it as this sort of philosophical thing. I recognize there are people that like to discuss it uh, with relation to that. But to me, it's very practical. And so I want to relate at the beginning here a story. I was... Uh, going to school, going to college at the University of Iowa, and uh, it was in my first year. So I was listening to this lecture about economics in this big chemistry building at the university campus, and um, the professor started talking about macroeconomics and Adam Smith's invisible hand or something and guns and butter and these drawing these charts And basically the message was that competition in the marketplace uh, and that sort of the mechanics of capitalism are going to produce better results, better results for consumers, better experiences and greater profits for businesses, a better society all around, that this is just great, that we need capitalism and we need Competition. Now, I'm not going to go off in a rant about capitalism. That's not what this is about. But the point was, when this professor was saying that competition is going to produce better outcomes, I raised my hand, which I guess, you know, at the time I didn't realize isn't done when somebody's lecturing to 300 people. But I asked, I said, you know, that doesn't seem right because when people cooperate, when people work together, when people collaborate, when they share ideas, when they help one another, that produces better results. That produces better products. It produces better outcomes. It produces 
lower prices to the point of having like no cost. If you look at Linux as an operating system or LibreOffice as a free word processing platform or numerous services that are now available for free that used to cost a lot of money, those are all examples of outcomes that were founded in people cooperating with one another around the world. And, you know, I acknowledge that the Olympics, kind of the pressure and the excitement of the Olympics drives athletes to compete with one another. And, and you know, we continue to see people making new world records. So there's, there's an, an element where that's true, that some competition or, you know, small businesses in town might lower their prices or extend their hours or try to produce a better product to compete and that sort of competition can be good but in general we need to have cooperation so anyway that was my question and the professor didn't really have an answer Um, and I just to me it was kind of interesting that there's a there's one mindset in the world that says we need to just you know particularly within business the goal is just to monopolize a market and crush the competition and you know there's this sort of imagery of battle um, for some people who go into business and I'm going to tie in related to that story and that anecdote I'm going to tie in another story I was early in my consulting career and early in in my building a business period phase or whatever Um, So I was working at a bank, and in the middle of a project, I was really excited about it too, because it was basically at a time when banks didn't have local backups for their PCs. And if a computer crashed, they would just lose the data. Things have changed a lot since then. But at the time, I saw this opportunity to offer a backup service. And, excuse me, I had, from my other consulting work, I had saved up some money. I saved up about $500. And I thought, you know, I could give that $500 to a banker, put it in a savings account, and at the end of the year, I would have $500 plus, you know, 1% interest, like a minimal amount of increase in what I owned. But instead of doing that, I thought, you know, I'm going to take that $500. Instead of putting it in a savings account, I'm going to invest it back in my business. And I was at Best Buy, which you are probably familiar with. Um, If you're here in the U.S., Best Buy is one of these big box retail electronics stores. I was walking around the aisles. I like to know what new products are available. And I saw this thing that was a tape backup drive. And it was $500. And I thought, hey, if I had a tape backup drive, I could offer backup services to people at home and at businesses. So I, I spent my $500 on this one item which was a little bit of a gamble. You know, most people want to do a little, some market research before making an investment. But at least I wasn't, you know, going to the bank and taking out a $10,000 loan to buy some equipment and take a gamble on some new 
venture. You know, it was like small steps, not going into debt, just using cash reserves that I had. But so I got this tape backup drive and yeah, I started backing up computers for people. And if somebody needed to have their system recovered, I could go in, bring the tape that had their backup and restore their computer. So it was a really cool thing at the time. It's kind of like Carbonite. We have these, you know, cloud backup services today, or you'll plug in a hard drive and run a backup program from Windows or whatever. But it was like the early days of that. And most of the time, people didn't need their backup restored because the computers weren't crashing. But when they did, they were really happy to have that. From that single purchase of the $500 tape backup drive, I was able to go out and probably double my money in a month or two. Um, and by the end of the year, that drive had really become a good source of income for my business. And that was an early lesson for me in business about how, you know, you can buy some tools that are relatively low cost and begin offering a lot more services and making money that way. And that, you know, had I, let's say I was earning 10% on an investment in the bank, I'd have $50 by the end of the year. But with my investing that $500 in a tape backup drive, I probably had, you know, $5,000 by the end of the year from, from work done with that drive. Um, so I began looking for other ways in business to reinvest and make money. And that approach seemed to work well and, and still does. So... One day when I was at this bank doing these backups, I got a call from a competitor of mine in Iowa City. And it was the owner of this business was calling me and asking me if I had a certain kind of a wrench. It's, it was for some of the early Apple Macintosh computers. And it needed to be this really long... Uh, as I recall, it was like a screwdriver of sorts, but it had to be like 12 inches long to get way inside where the handle on the computer was, where these screws were to open up the case. And I was explained, well, I'm, you know, right in the middle of a project, but when do you need it? Where do you need it? And he said, well, I have some people right now working in Iowa City downtown. And it was like, uh, you know, maybe five blocks away from where I was. And I thought, yeah, I can get that over there to your employees working on that project. Um, and so I told them I'd take care of it. And I did. I stopped what I was doing, turned off the clock as far as billing, and went and volunteered some, volunteered some time for this competitor of mine. It took a wrench over there that these people needed. So um, according to that professor, that economics professor in college, that would have been my moment to strike, you know, to, uh, to really, you know, laugh at this competitor and say, ha, good luck. You're never going to fix that computer and whatever, you know, um, to put on that competitive helmet and just 
watch the competition drop by the wayside because they don't have the right tool or something. I don't know. But my attitude at the time was, no, here's somebody who needs something. I can help them. There's plenty of, there's plenty of work to be done, you know, and, and the more people doing the work, the better off it's going to be for everybody. We, I didn't feel like I needed to, um, you know, reduce the market of people providing services. I know how that just doesn't work out well. When they're monopolies or even duopolies, consumers aren't well served. I think about in Iowa City and elsewhere, you'll notice how there often are just two primary internet service providers. In Iowa City, we have Mediacom and CenturyLink. It works okay, but it's a duopoly. So there's not a lot of competition, uh, you know, in terms of them wanting to bring their prices down or satisfy customers or what have you. So um, what I have found is when there are more businesses in the marketplace providing services, that there can be a few more innovations and creativity. And there's a way of competing with each other rather than competing against each other. And the example I just gave of taking the phone call, volunteering some time, uh, sharing the tools that I had, that's competing with somebody. You want them to succeed and you want you to succeed. You want everybody to succeed. And it doesn't have to, you know, cut into your market share. Um, so how this all relates to feminism is as follows. Um, if we oversimplify the topic of feminism, we could describe it as this struggle between two goals, I guess you could say. And the two goals are described in this way. The first goal of feminism would be to demonstrate that women are equally capable and in in both, you know, physical and mental capabilities are equal to and in many cases far exceeding the outcomes that men can achieve. And someone who's born biologically as one gender should not be discriminated against. And in order to, you know, demonstrate the equality, the equality of the sexes, great um, effort needs to be made. So you need to have women going to space. You need to have women joining the Navy SEALs and becoming Marines and women CEOs. And it's only after many, many, many examples where women demonstrate that they can um, exceed men's capabilities that finally does it start to sink in for some people who've had a difficult time accepting the fact that, you know, women and men are equal and they're not identical. They're going to be experiences that women have that men won't have, uh, having children, for example, or, you know, other things that make women and men different. But the point is, part of feminism is the struggle of demonstrating that women can be as, you know, even 
militaristic. Um, so while that has been necessary, it's not been ideal. Like, it's basically been this culture where men defined what the goals were, and then women said, okay, well, we can achieve those goals equally. We can be equal to you. So women became drone operators, you know, and dropped bombs, just like men. So women and men can drop bombs on, unfortunately, at sometimes they fall on hospitals and schools and wedding parties and funerals. Um, but, you know, there's people would acknowledge, okay, they're equally capable of causing destruction. Or um, women CEOs can do the same things that men CEOs have done. Um, you know, uh, dumping toxic waste, cutting corners on products, um, you know, sending, hiring mercenaries and sending gunships to uh, shut down student protests in Central America, whatever it is. I'm giving some extreme examples, but the point is, it's necessary, of course, to prove that you're equal, but there needs to, there needs to be an entirely different, you know, game rule, game plan, um, because it's not always a great thing for somebody to try to achieve equality with some really stupid thinking and stupid actions and destructive things that, say, a hundred years ago might have been predominantly a male-dominated uh, activity, like war, for example. Some countries have had women in their armies and in some countries and throughout history there have been times when women have been predominantly the ones who fight the wars but in general in recent history western civilization so i hope i've not gone off on too many tangents here but the point is that when any people be it gender-based uh, ethnicity whatever it is, when any people are trying to demonstrate equality, there is this inclination to say, well, we've got to do what the dominant culture is doing, and we have to show that we can do it with the same vigor. Um, now, the reason I say that there are these two opposing narratives or goals is that at its core, if, if we look at like ecofeminism and, you know, if we look at kind of the, the essence, the basic foundations, the building blocks, the structure of what feminism is supposed to be about, um, it's not to say that women can't be generals. They certainly can be. But Feminism could be about and should be about transforming the world so that the dominant culture that everyone's trying to compete against or become more like or demonstrate their ability with, that that dominant culture would not be a patriarchy-driven machismo that destroys the planet and exploits nature and extracts natural resources. Um, but instead, what you would have is 
let me just paint a picture. If, if you see women socializing, this is going to be an overgeneralization, but if you see women socializing, typically you'll see lots of hugging, lots of smiles, lots of laughter, a touch on the arm, you know, so more physical contact. And you'll see a lot more uh, sharing of, let's say, feelings or inquiring about, well, how are you doing? How's the family? You know, a lot of that kind of talk would be some traditional dialogues and exchanges that women might have. And, again, speaking with great overgeneralization and simplification, but when you see a group of... Sorry for that little bumping sound. I was running down a very steep hill where I'm doing my hiking here. Um, when you see a group of men get together, there aren't a lot of hugs and kisses and holding hands and how are you doing today, Bob, you know. And certainly what I've just described, these sort of differences between women interacting and men interacting, that has provided lots of fodder for comedians and sitcoms and we sort of joke about and laugh about these differences between men and women and there have been you know lots of stories and humor about that um, and while those generalizations are somewhat true they're not you know universal facts but that's the picture I want you to think about though and so I've noticed uh, throughout my life as I let's say, you know, go to a Bible study and it was like, you know, 12 women and two guys. <laughs> um, and, and I, or I would study language. Um, I took sign language at one point classes and for some reason the classrooms were like predominantly women. Um, there are certain topics of interest that tend to attract more men or attract more women for whatever reason. Um, something we're seeing in recent years with kind of a resurgence of the NRA and gun culture is women getting more and more involved in hunting and in going to shooting ranges and obstacle courses and things like that. And there's been a lot of enthusiasm among those in that culture because that sort of represents that their base is broadening and that culture is growing or whatever. Um, and those would be examples of non-traditional roles where women normally aren't out on the obstacle course and shooting range and hunting with, you know, uh, semi-automatic automatic weapons or whatever. So the kind of militarization and the the macho culture um, being adopted by women is uh, an example of equality. But some people would say, well, that's maybe that's not what we need more of in our culture. Um, so if we look back at these traditional roles, and, and this is something that most people are trying to shed our culture of, are these traditional roles from like 70 years ago, the 1950s, the, 
images of a housewife who stays at home while the the husband goes out and earns the money. Um, Some people look back on that and say, boy, that's the golden era. We need to get back to that. And other people would say, no, that was a time of inequality where women weren't empowered and didn't have the freedom to, you know, if they were in a bad situation, they didn't have the freedom to leave because of social stigma. They couldn't get divorced. And because financially, they either wouldn't be able to get a job or certainly wouldn't earn as much as a man. So there are some people that look back on that time and say, no, that's it's not what we want to go back to. But from that era, if you think about women being compassionate, caring, the term mothering, you know, um, that's sort of a trope and a potential uh, pitfall, I guess, of people making the argument for feminism is that they'll say, oh, women have such a capability of being empathetic and and that's their their nature is to be mothering and and uh that men generally aren't as strong in that area i recently had a conversation with somebody they they brought this up in something they were talking about they were just saying that they'd heard someone making this argument that women are more empathetic than men and she was very upset about that because she said no they're they're men who are caring and there are women who aren't caring. And so you can't universally just say that, that that's true. And I was just listening to her tell this. It was something that had sparked um, from a conversation she was having with someone else. And, you know, that was part of an argument I would make is that feminism as a, a way, as a, a lifestyle, or as a way of thinking... Um, can draw people toward more holistic and compassionate ways of looking at the world. But let's get back to this idea of effectiveness, which is what I started out this uh, episode with, talking about effectiveness, talking about that professor, the economics professor. And it really... It becomes meaningless. It's like talking about conservatives and liberals or Democrats and Republicans or feminists and non-feminists or something. The, the lines are so blurry. Today, you know, people are changing their gender. So not just what they sort of identify as, but what they physically are. They'll get um, surgery done. So how do we look at feminism in the context of that um you know is is there a core essence of feminism that is owned by women or you know if if a man changes to become a woman does he become a feminist inherently having those characteristics i don't know i don't want to go off on that whole tangent but um the point is that women tend to look for ways to cooperate, to collaborate, to um, generally create more peace in the world. Now, I know I've just triggered like half the audience, uh, and, and like this friend I was telling you about would not like to hear that message. But in general, uh, 
and these are all just kind of anecdotal and not scientific observations, but in general, it seems like women are looking for more ways to be, you know, connecting on a more meaningful level with each other and with others. Um, and, and men, for whatever reason, it's maybe cultural, maybe it's, you know, nurture, maybe it's nature, but men, for some reason, aren't doing that. Now, let's go from the abstract, which I've been talking about, and let's go to some real concrete examples. There was a study done that demonstrated where women CEOs are guiding large organizations, the outcomes are better. And you can Google that, and you'll find the results of that study. That's quite interesting. Um, and that was a study that was done over a broad enough amount of data that you could conclude that maybe there's something to be learned from that. Somehow, you know, the way women approach managing an organization somehow produces better overall results, not just financial results, but also quality of work life results. Where we've seen women become heads of state um, in different countries, we see very interesting outcomes. Uh, concern about the environment, concern about equal rights, concern about workers, uh, just concern about health care being provided to everybody. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, men can't think about those things, but bottom line, what are the outcomes where women have been in leadership roles in government, good things have happened. Another way in which the aggregate collected data shows and reflects a disparity, a difference between men and women is with regard to gender and incarceration rates. And, you know, similarly, a mystery, like we don't really know why women live longer than men. We don't know why, in many cases, the CEOs produce better results than men. And similarly, the fact that there are so many more men who are incarcerated than women um, also points to being kind of an indicator that women apparently make different choices and use different thought processes than men. And that I think it's undeniable to say there's an example of a better outcome. We obviously don't want people breaking laws and having to get thrown into prison. And women seem to be better at not ending up in that situation. So there's another example of where it would be good to step back, take a look at the nuts and bolts, figure out, okay, what is it that is producing these better outcomes? And how can everyone, regardless of their gender, embrace those processes, those thought processes, those practices, those philosophies to produce a better outcome. And, you know, there's also the sort of undeniable fact that women generally live longer than men. 
Now, you might say, well, that's maybe biological or genetic or there's something, you know, doesn't have to do with their core nature. But let's go back to something I mentioned earlier, which is, in general, when you see women interacting, there is a lot more listening, often, to the person who's talking. There's a lot more reaching out, hugs, affection, laughing, compliments about, oh, uh, you know, someone might compliment a person's clothing or their hair or their whatever, jewelry. Um, so there's this immersive experience in a lot of positive interaction. And it makes sense that, you know, medically, from a health standpoint, that's going to produce longevity. We, we know from other studies that people that have more physical, positive physical interactions have better health. They heal better. They don't get as sick as, uh, get sick as often or whatever. So that there are, uh, you know, physiological reactions to that. So it, it could be argued that the, the general tendencies of women to, in how they interact with each other, in how they make life decisions, um, that, and I know that everything I'm saying can be refuted, you know, you look at some show, that movie, uh, Mean Girls, you know, I mean, there, there's that aspect of things where uh, all of this can be kind of argued against, but I'm just saying the outcomes, regardless of all the other stories that we can think about and anecdotes we can think about, the outcomes are countries seem to do very well with women leaders. Companies do very well with women leaders. Women live longer than men. It starts to add up to a conclusion that a uh, whatever it is the feminist or feminine or female perspective philosophy um, produces good results. Maybe it produces different results. Maybe we can't quite say, "Oh, it's better," but living longer seems better. Um, you know, so. Again, it's really hard to kind of extrapolate from so much history, so many events, so many opinions, so much data. How can we really come to a conclusion? But what we can see is that to the extent that a feminist approach, if we look at ecofeminism again, you know, a feminist approach to life and to the world and to others is to seek out more cooperation rather than competition to look for ways to be having a sustainable healthy balanced life as we interact with nature rather than destroying things and extracting natural resources to the point that they'll never come back again um I think I can generalize and say that the feminine or feminist or eco-feminist approach seems to be more sustainable. 
uh, would seek out more diplomacy instead of war, would look for ways that people can collaborate and work together rather than compete and work against each other. And so the real question is then, if there is such a thing as feminism, a deep kind of thought process and philosophy and you know, way of interacting with others and with the world, is that something that anyone could study and have some aha moments and say, oh, you know, that makes sense. I mean, like me, I'm a typical guy, and yet I can study this stuff and I can say, oh, yeah, yeah, that kind of actually makes sense. Maybe it's better for people to, you know, work together and help each other and have a more peaceful world. Um, so you don't necessarily have to be a, a traditional 1970s feminist marching in the streets with signs uh, kind of supporter or, or someone who acknowledges feminism. And that's basically the point of this episode is even in times when people are questioning their own biological gender and there's gender fluidity and there it's just really um, hard to even isolate the, the core elements that would have in the past been identified as, you know, markers for, oh, this person is a man or this person's a woman. <coughs> Where does feminism stand in that? So traditional feminism and the, the feminine, feminism of women being allowed to fight in wars to prove that they're equal to men... Um, that sort of dissipates in a society where anyone can be a woman or anyone can be a man because they can change their biology uh, and they can develop whatever inner um, gender they want to pursue. But if we were to look at it that way, I mean, for example, what if we got to a point where we'd say, oh, you know, men and women are equal, getting equal pay, they're working in equal jobs, everything's fine, let's just close that book and move on, or close that chapter. But no, that's sort of an ongoing struggle, and there is this other aspect of feminism that isn't about women trying to be as masculine as possible, but it's about studying and getting down to the core elements of what feminism would be. Anyway, I know this is more of a philosophical talk than I normally would have on my channel, and I know that such a diversity of listeners is going to produce a diversity of responses. Um, but, you know, the general message is, hey, regardless of who we are, what our gender is, what our background is, whatever somebody identifies as, if we take a step back and we look at some of these outcomes and before it's sort of long and forgotten and erased, if we take a moment to say, hey, what were some of the considered to be traditional like feminine 
female women's approaches to things um, and take a moment to study that and to really inventory that and think about how, you know, maybe the way that men who've dominated society, maybe the choices that have been made collectively by those people in power have not been you know, totally optimal and ideal compared to maybe some other choices that could have been made. What kind of society would have been created um, if we had thought differently, like the Apple commercial states? Um, I would be curious to know other people's thoughts on this topic. Because it's sort of a vague topic, it's hard to talk about with specifics, but... Um, I hope the general message has come through and particularly this idea of, you know, the competing aspects of the feminist movement throughout history, which is on the one hand, trying to prove that women can be just as macho and aggressive and, you know, ego driven or whatever as you know, men and women can be equal in that regard. So that's one thing, to prove equality. But then the other aspect of this, which is to tear all that down, you know. And how can you tear down a patriarchal, largely competitive, militant, dominating worldview by trying to be equal to it, you know. What you'd want to do is say, okay, I'm going to take X period of years to prove that we can be equal. Okay, now that we've done that, that was stupid, you know, or at least trying to align with this other way of thinking. And then build up from scratch, okay, what's a better world we could create where we don't have unending wars, where we don't have a... Guantanamo, where prisoners sit for years and then eventually are told, oh, we're sorry, I guess we don't have any actual evidence against you, so we're just going to send you back to, you know, the UK or Canada or wherever somebody might have come from. Um, you know, how can we build a world where we don't hear just story after story of corporations that are, I mean, one example of many, there was a congressional hearing about this bank, and I, I'm not going to mention the bank's name because I'll probably get it wrong, but the bank was laundering money for drug cartels. Not just one or two people, but like that institutional money laundering for drug cartels and doing banking with countries that are on our no contact list. I mean, you know, crazy stuff. And anyway, they were warned not to do it, told not to do it. They kept doing it. And they, they never got really significantly punished for it. But um, there are other examples of companies, you know, trying to save a dollar and 59 cents on some product. And then the product ends up harming people. And the company knows and they do it anyway, because it makes profits. So I'm saying, 
things are good, but maybe there could be a better world if we would take a moment to just step back and say, hey, what's a better kind of more cooperative, more holistic, healing, engaging, fair, democratic way of approaching every industry and sector of society? Could there be a slightly better way of doing things? And of course, you know, there is overall a progress, uh, slow transitions to new ways of thinking and doing things. But um, for me, I, I think the reason that it's important to bring up these topics and to discuss these topics is because life gets so busy and society is so driven by... Um, you know, a narrow number of news outlets and entertainment industry moguls. Our culture is really kind of shaped by a very small number of people. And those people either don't care or don't think about um, some of these issues. And so, you know, it's something that would have to be organic and inspired by individuals trying to... uh, you know, keep a torch going. And and also that for people who are inclined to think, hey, you know, men have no business talking about feminism. And how can they understand what women have been through? And there's no man that can be an authority on what is really a, a women's issue. Um, instead of having that attitude that while that is largely true for a lot of areas of life that there is this aspect of feminist theology ecofeminism feminist philosophy that is sort of a practical nuts and bolts approach to effective interactions with people to effective living, effective business management, running countries. Um, And, you know, I'll say, in addition to countries where women are actually the leaders of the country, there are also countries where, if they're not the leader of the country, they're having significant influence on those in power, and they are equally represented in legislatures. Um, And in those environments where men and women are equally represented, there are better outcomes, typically. Now, I know I'm going to hear from somebody in, you know, Saudi Arabia or somewhere who says, hey, we're doing fine. We don't need women to be equally represented in government. Um, And... uh, Actually, I don't know. Maybe they do have women running the government there. But the point is, of all these anecdotal stories, we can kind of collect some information and come to some conclusions. Well, this has been a rambling conversation. Well, I'm conversing, and you're listening, which I appreciate. Um, And I hope it wasn't too disorganized. But I was just kind of giving you a stream of thought presentation of these ideas. 
And I do look forward to uh, getting some feedback from people. And at some point, I plan to write an article on these topics and on this subject. And so if I do get emails from people, um, I'll certainly, you know, reflect that and incorporate that into whatever article gets created. So thanks so much for following these podcasts along. I appreciate the subscriptions and the sharing and the comments. And I certainly look forward to sharing more with you again soon.